0: Welcome to Faith Baptist Church Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Uh, I'm I'm happy and excited to be here with you this morning. It's it's great. God is good. Mm -hmm. All the time. God is good. Uh, We're going to uh, be. Jumping into scripture this morning, and uh, I'm excited about what, what uh, God has uh, been speaking to my heart about in, uh, in these days, and where we're at. Uh, it's uh, pretty exciting content when you're talking about Elijah and Elisha, like... You know, we're, we're going through the Bible, and over a period of three years, we're going through uh, the Bible, this, on this journey through the Bible, and we're, we're just, we're kind of hitting the high points, and I guess you could say we're hitting the low points, because uh, so often the, the low points with us are God's high points, because when we're at our worst, God is at his best, and nowhere is that more evident than in the life and death of Jesus, but when you look at the Bible as a whole, I mean, the accounts of Elijah and Elisha, are, are, they're spectacular, they're amazing, uh, they're wonderful. And uh, so that's kind of where we're at today. We're in First Kings um, 19 and Second Kings chapter 2. Um, I hope that you're working along and studying along with us and taking this journey with us. Uh, because um, there's nothing more important in this world. Uh, than the Word of God. Word of God and people. Those are the two things that God cares more about than anything in this world today. And one of the things that we like to try to do on a Sunday morning is bring those two things together. To get together as people uh, and to open God's Word together. And, uh, so today's, a, t- today's a, g- a good day. I, I have... Uh, I have some things that I'm uh, excited about sharing with you. A little anxious too because it's not all easy stuff. But that's all good. Sometimes, and good doesn't mean easy. Do you realize that? Yeah, I'm sure you do. Uh, I know you've been up and down a lot. I mean, sitting down and standing up a lot today. Probably the other way too. But I'm gonna ask you to stand again, and, and we'll pray together. Now, maybe you're here today, and maybe this is new to you. Maybe the whole church thing's new to you. Maybe the Bible is new to you, or maybe prayer is new to you. Although I have to say, most people do pray, and even even people who say they don't believe in God suddenly find themselves praying fervently. <laughs> at times in their lives, right? So, so we're just going to take a moment and pray, pray together. There's nothing magical or, or, or super mystical about it. We're just simply talking to the Lord, uh, our Creator and our Savior, and asking Him to bless our time. And we have prayed today, and we've sung today, and we've worshipped the Lord in song today. But let's just pray and ask God to bless His Word to our heart as we, as we get into our, our uh, Scripture time today and, uh, and ask that He would work in our hearts to help us to understand and apply his word. That's so important. Together, as a family, can we do that? Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, I thank you for this tremendous group of people here today. For each one in the situations and circumstances of our lives, Lord, that are varied and many. And yet, Lord, you are the constant. You are the God who never changes, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, you were there in the beginning. The word was with God and the word was, was God. And, Lord, you were there at the creation. You were there prior to the creation. Lord, you you are the one true constant in all of life. And, Lord, today we worship you as our Savior, the one who is mighty to save, as our rock, as our shield, as the source of all life and as our our Redeemer and our Savior, we we thank you for this opportunity. And as we open your word together today, Lord, we pray you would be our teacher, that you would convict our hearts by your spirit of the things that you want us to know and that you want us to do. Uh, Lord, I do ask for those who have special needs. I know there are even in this room and outside of this room today, um, any of your people who are struggling and hurting, and we pray for them today. We pray you would encourage the downhearted, and that you would comfort the, um, those who are hurting, and that you would lift up and encourage those who uh, need that from you this day. Um, and, Lord, we pray you continue to draw people to yourself. Thank you today, Lord. Thank you for the incredible privilege that we have of being in this place together. And opening up your word together, and knowing that you are here, Lord, we just invite you to speak to our hearts through your word today. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Thank you. Please uh, have a seat. I want to actually start, even though we're in uh, we're in First Kings, First Second Kings. I want to actually start in the book of Hebrews, because I um, last week for those of you who did get to uh, to check out uh, the uh, the video session that we did online, uh, we went to the book of Hebrews a little bit because the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, kind of provides a little bit of an outline of the Old Testament. And we're, of course, in the Old Testament. And, and um, after talking uh, about Old Testament, uh, Old Testament characters, uh, like he talks about uh, Abel, this is the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews 11, he talks about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Rahab. And then he says this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. He says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and of Samuel and of the prophets. They say that the book of Hebrews is actually, even though we called it a letter, it's actually written like a sermon, which I find really interesting, especially when he says, time would fail me. In other words, I don't have enough time. How many times have I said that on a Sunday morning? (laughs) I don't have enough time to get into that. And so the writer of Hebrews is is writing, he's writing kind of like a sermon, and he's writing to exhort and to admonish. In fact, he says over in chapter 13, verse 22, he calls it a short sermon. So kind of wrap your mind around that too. Um, Anyways, he mentions all those people, and then he says, and the prophets. And it's almost uh, like the prophets have this this uh, identif- are identified as a, uh, like a final category of the Old Testament. Up until now in the biblical timeline, the emphasis has been on the patriarchs. Remember those guys: Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and all his brothers, um, and elders of the people, and the leaders of the people, and the and the priests, and the judges, and the kings. And now that the people are firmly established in the land and, and they've enjoyed unprecedented success under David and Solomon. The leaders have led the people away from God into apostasy and rebellion and evil and they've pushed the Lord to the margins of their lives and His ways. Push the Lord and his ways to the margins of their lives. And in those days, in these days that we're talking about right now, God sends prophets. Now, it's not that there weren't prophets before. Enoch is called a prophet. Noah is, Noah is called a prophet. Moses is certainly the prototype of all the prophets. So there were prophets before. But in these days, the prophets, well, they're more marginalized. They're more uh, what we could call countercultural—they're more confrontational, they're more colorful and creative, more dramatic and more intense. Elijah was very intense. As I said uh, on the video or the last Sunday when we were recording, he's not the kind of guy that got a lot of invitations to social parties. He didn't get any. Now, probably because he spent all his time in the wilderness wearing hairy coats and eating roadkill and probably didn't smell very good. I, I don't know. But, uh, but the, the prophets, they became radical. They become, it became, uh, uh, in a phrase, larger than life. You could pay, here's a picture of an artist depiction of Elijah. I don't know. We don't know what Elijah looked like. But we, do. we have a, a short description in 2 uh, Kings chapter 1, if you noticed it there. It talks about him wearing a big hairy coat and a big, big leather belt and, and everything. But, uh, so we're, we're, but, but I like this depiction because not only do I like how it depicts Elijah, but I love the look on Jezebel's face there. She's got that, you're a dead man look, Right. <laughs> which is very pertinent to the material we're into, because if you're reading this, Ahab and Jezebel were like the duo of destruction between the two of them. They're, you know, they say the old saying, we're, we're better together. That's not always true, right? Sometimes we're worse together. And Ahab and Jezebel, uh, they were worse together, because by themselves, they were bad enough. But together, I'll tell you, it became exponential. And they were, you, you read it, we're, we're not going to have time to read about Naboth's uh, vineyard, which is, I think, chapter uh, tw- 20, 20, yeah, 20, 1 Kings 20, 21 in there. Uh, but you read it because, wow, what a piece of work. Um, you know, when you read it, it's like, you, you kind of, sometimes you feel sorry for people, you know, when they go through hard times, but I tell you, when you read about Ahab and Jezebel, they, had, they deserved everything that was coming to them. They really did. And uh, so reading on in Hebrews, I think it's important. Listen listen to what he says after this. So in verse 32, he says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. And then he says in verse 33, Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Who does that remind you of? Daniel. Daniel quenched the, the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, sometimes, and were made strong out of weakness. I think that reminds me of Elijah. Became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Both Elijah and Elisha have uh, accounts of, of, of uh, children being raised. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking. And flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. I believe they believe, I think the historians believe that Isaiah suffered that fate, if I'm not mistaken. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. It's like, wow. That is a description of a marginalized group. And this is a period of time we're talking about the prophets. You know, when Elijah stood on Mount Carmel and he said, you know, there's 450 prophets of Baal standing over here, and over here is just me. One of the reasons he could say that is because Jezebel had done what? She was killing all the prophets of the Lord. These are days of great apostasy and great um, evil. I know we use the word evil sometimes. We don't. I don't even know if we appreciate what what our society appreciates what it means or not. I'm not sure. But, but, uh, but, but these times are bad times. Uh, Mitchell, if you could bring up the the chart there of the prophets, just to give you a little bit of a visual. Uh, This here, um, I was showing this thing to Josh. This is a pointer. We didn't tell him we had it, poor guy, but he knows now. Uh, This right here, this here right here, I believe, represents the life and rule of Solomon. And then you have this this division of the kingdom. Remember, Josh shared about how... uh, Jeroboam rises up, and he goes to, to Rehoboam. I always get those two names confused, but Rehoboam is the son of Solomon, and, and he, and he you know, gives them this speech, and, and, and Rehoboam says, you ain't seen nothing yet, and Jeroboam says, well, if that's the way you're going to be, we're gone. And they take off, and they start what is called the Northern Kingdom. That's where we're at, okay? So about 40 years later, several, a few, uh, there's been a few regime changes. You have guys like Jeroboam passing off the scene, and then you have guys like Omri. Who was uh, Ahab's father? Just bad people, okay? Just evil people, bad leaders uh, leading the people astray, going sinning and causing the people to sin. That's the phrase that gets repeated over and over again: sinning and causing the people to sin. And of course, uh, with that comes comes uh, judgment. Um, these are these are bad days. So. So there you have the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, and then you have all of the other, the, what they call the writing prophets. So you will recognize these, and we're going to be talking about, uh, about um, uh, not all of these. We're not going to cover every one of them, but I think in uh, two weeks' time, I think Josh is preaching the book of Jonah. Where did he go? I know he's on there, right up there. Yeah, see that? Uh, and then we're going to be talking a little bit about Hosea. And we're, going to be talking, and we're going to be bringing a lot of these prophetic writings into our timeline as we go through the history and seeing where they, where they fit and how they belong. The reason I show you this, and it's kind of just a, it's just a chart, but the reason I show it to you is you can understand the days, understand the times, understand the situation, because if you don't understand the context, you will not understand the content, And you'll read books like Jonah and and Hosea and others, and you go, I have no clue what this guy's talking about. Why are they so mad anyway? What's wrong with these guys? Like, they're they're really cynical. Things were bad. Things got so bad, you know, things were bad because the people had um, uh, turned away from the covenant relationship they had with God. Um, morally or ethically, things were just in a skid slide. As you, if you, it's, and then the judgment. The judgments from God are coming. And after a while, it gets almost impossible to distinguish between the judgments of God and the natural consequences of their behavior. It's like you can't even sort it all out because it's just, it's just so bad. You know, there's this story. We won't be reading it, but you can read it. But it's, It comes up later in chapter 2 Kings. I don't think we're going to be reading this or, or preaching about it. 2 Kings chapter 2, where there's uh, a Ben-Hadad that besieges the city of Samaria, and there's these two women who, who they're, they're starving to death, literally starving to death. These people start eating their own children. How can we get it in our hearts and minds what's really going on in the context so that we can understand and appreciate and apply the content. And that's why I'm kind of belaboring this a little bit because it's important that we don't make interpretive mistakes and application mistakes. The disciples misinterpreted and misapplied a lot of the disciples of Jesus in the New Testament. A lot of what is in these passages that we're reading today. I'll give you an example. I, I think I mentioned this last Sunday, but I'll t- I didn't actually go there. But this morning, Mitchell, if you would, Luke 9, 51 to 55, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and the disciples are with him, and he goes to go into the Samaritan village. Mental note, the material we're covering all, is all taking place in the northern kingdom, which is New Testament, Samaria, and Galilee. Okay, make make some connections. When you hear the city of Samaria that Ahab's father Omri made the capital of the northern kingdom, all right, follow through here. It's it's important context. So they're going along, and they come to the Samaritan village, and it says what? The people rejected him. They uh, they sent mm, preparation, but the people did not receive him, verse 53, because the face was set toward Jerusalem. Why did Jeroboam set up the false worship system in the first place? Partly because he didn't want the people of the north going down and having anything to do with that tribe of David. Even though God had chosen the tribe of David in Jerusalem as the messianic line. Okay. And all of that, you you can call that politics if you want, but it's all background. It's all significant here. You know, how people get along and how they don't get along. And anyways, it says, when his disciples, James and John, known as the sons of thunder, (laughs) saw that, they said, look at this. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And I can just picture Jesus looking at them and going, what? And he rebuked them. It says, verse 35, 55, 55, he rebuked them. Some, uh, some of the ancient manuscripts say that, that Jesus continued there with these words. Do you not know? You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. And we're, we're, not, uh, we're not sure if that was a scribal insertation or not. But either way, it's certainly consistent with the words of Jesus in John chapter 3. And last uh, week, uh, you know, I, we... Uh, talking about Elijah and Mount Carmel, the, 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 the fire from heaven and the context of the rain that wasn't coming from heaven um, and understanding those things and trying to to see God's mercy and desire in his heart to bless and to reconcile and to draw people into relationship with, with him in the context of these judgments that he's sending. And, you know, we might, we might struggle to see them as, as, as mercies. You know, we have a real clear line in our minds between judgment and mercy. But you, but you think about this. God could have just said, Ahab, I'm not dealing with you anymore. But he didn't. He kept sending Elijah. Elijah kept going to Ahab and telling him. But unfortunately, Ahab's heart, he just kept listening to Jezebel. not I don't want to blame Jezebel. She was as bad as he was, and he was as bad as she was. But he wasn't listening to the Lord. The, the key role of the prophets was to call people to, to reconcile to God, right? I... Uh, I want sh- to share this and then I'm going to try to move on if I can but because these things are important and they tend to preoccupy my mind. But Ezekiel 33.11 shows us the heart of God, even in the context of judgment. And I love this and I, and I, I, I shared it last Sunday on, online. But for those of you who didn't, you know, didn't tune into that or, or uh, you know, we didn't have an option of putting scripture on, on the screen for you like we do today and I hope you have your Bibles and I hope you read your Bibles. But look at that. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God. This is, this is the Lord talking to, to us, okay? This is his word, and these, this is his voice through the prophet Ezekiel. Look at it. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's not God's heart. Judgment is not God's heart. What is God's heart? There it is right there. But that the wicked would turn from his way and live, turn back Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O host of Israel? It's like God is weeping. If you can think of God weeping, maybe you, you never, never thought about God as a weeping God. It seems such a, like a, such a weak thing to do. Maybe it seems like a human thing to, to do. But you know what? It's not. The God who made us with the ability or the capacity to weep is a God who weeps. You don't believe me? The New Testament is very clear. When you look at Jesus, you're, you're seeing the Father. You're seeing the heart of the Father. And what about this Jesus? Yeah, he walked into the temple one day and made a whip, and he drove those money changers out of that temple. And it says there, it says the zeal. He, he, you see, an angry, zealous Jesus. But if you back up a few verses... And just prior to that, let me read it for you. I'm, I'm not going to project it, but let me read it. It says, and when he drew near the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. And then back a couple of chapters before that we have these words, "O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as hens gather her brood under her wings, and you were not willing." John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light is coming into the world. But people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. See, it's all about your heart, and, with, and, and that's what God is interested in. He's interested in our hearts. And here he has a whole nation of people, moms and dads and, and kids, that are just, just walking away. And he would do anything to bring them back. He would even die to bring them back. And will he use judgments? Absolutely. And he'll use them in your life and mine, too. New Testament says a lot about God correcting his children. You want a, a, a proof text? Hebrews chapter 11. For this cause many are sick among you and some even sleep, as in die. For if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. As a father corrects his children, so the Lord corrects those he loves. When you experience the correction, this is Hebrews chapter 12, right? When you experience the correction of the Lord, don't consider it to be condemnation. Understand that he's doing it because he loves you and he's trying to draw your heart back. Well, as I say, it's really important that we uh, interpret and apply these things uh, carefully. We need to be careful. Last week, talking about Mount Carmel, Um, If we're going to understand the fire from heaven, we need to understand the rain from heaven. Um, Elijah never called down fire from heaven. People think Elijah called down fire from heaven. The apostles James and John, they thought Elijah called down fire from heaven. Elijah never called down fire from heaven. All he did was live for God, tell people the way it was, and prayed. That's what he did. But fire fell from heaven. Same as the rain. You can't call down rain from heaven. Neither could Elijah. But you can pray the promises of God like Elijah did. Anyways, this is heavy stuff, eh? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Mount Carmel. I know we're not on Mount Carmel today, but that's Mount Carmel. Just to give you, you know, a little bit of visual, that's Mount Carmel, okay? Um, this is uh, a view from Mount Carmel. That's why if you're at the top looking out over the Jezreel Valley, also known as the Valley of Armageddon, that's what you see. Pretty impressive, eh? Beautiful. Uh, here's a bit of a map. This is, um, this is Mount Carmel. It's actually a ridge of mountains. It's about, I think, 13 miles long or something like that. It juts out into the Mediterranean here, and the view you were just looking at is right here, the uh, Valley of Jezreel. And in this, the account of Elijah at Mount Carmel, you remember when he uh, races, uh, races Ahab in the chariot to Jezreel, right? And we're going to have this great big revival. Uh, then, he tell, then Ahab tells Jezebel what Elijah did. Well, Jezebel put a stop to the revival real quick. She sent a messenger to Ahab or to uh, Elijah. She said, you're a dead man. And the text says that Elijah uh he had just run all the way from uh, Mount Carmel to Jezreel, outraced Ahab's chariot. Now he heads out, he took, takes his attendant or his servant, and he goes all the way to Beersheba. Jerusalem would be right about here somewhere, okay? This gives you an idea, Beersheba, okay? Then he left his attendant or his servant and went a day's journey into the wilderness again, probably south of Beersheba. And that's where the passage that Josh mentioned under the broom tree. Lord, I've that's it. I'm finished. Take my life. And it's there that the angels. God sent angels. Remember before God used the crows and he used or the ravens rather. There is a difference, I guess, between the ravens and the, and the widow of Zarephath to minister. This time he sends angels. And they waited on Elijah. They fed him, and he went on the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights. It's not on the map. It's down here somewhere. Mount Horeb, also known in Scripture as Sinai, in the Sinai Peninsula. We're not even in the land of Israel anymore, okay? We're so far in the wilderness, but, but get this, it's called the Mount of God. <laughs> so how many of you know this, that all of the earth belongs to the Lord? You know that? Yeah. But the Mount of God, Horeb Sinai, has, has a lot of significance. And, uh, and we, uh, we didn't get to talk about that last week, the whole, that whole um, uh, episode of the earth and the wind and the fire and then the still small voice. All right? We didn't, we didn't t- touch on that. Um, I, I do want to touch on it just a little bit. Uh, I hope I don't get myself in trouble time-wise with it, but I wanted to say a couple of things—a uh, couple of things about it. Um, <clears throat> look at uh, chapter 17, verse 1. Okay, this is before this is before anything. This is the first, This is when we meet we meet Elijah. Chapter 17, verse 1, First Kings. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, "As the Lord, the, Son, the God of Israel, lives." before whom I stand there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So this is where we meet Elijah for the first time. But notice he says as the Lord lives that is a recurring phrase. It comes up again and again and again. The God of Israel is a living God. What differentiates the God of of Israel from the gods of the pagan nations is that Yahweh actually is a living God. And the first time in Scripture, just follow me a little bit, the first time in Scripture where um, we have this statement about God being a living God is in the book of Deuteronomy, and there, in chapter 5, is connected to God speaking. I have to take a breath here. I'm getting too intense. A God who speaks. The living God speaks. The central theme that we see throughout the material we're in is the word of the Lord. If you're looking for a a theme that ties these passages together, that's it. That's what Elijah's ministry was all about. That's what these that's what God wanted the people to understand. Like God up to this point God has said a lot, right? He's given them the, the covenant and the laws and the commandments and the and 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 the promises of prosperity for if they would just follow his ways and so on. I mean, he spoke a lot. He's not done speaking. And he's speaking through his prophets, but the people aren't aren't listening. And so this still small voice that Elijah hears is very significant because the difference between the God of Elijah and the gods of the of the uh, of the the pagan nations is that God is a a living God. Uh chapter the next verse uh, chapter 17 verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him. You see that's the theme. All right? So that's that's one thing about this Mount Horeb thing. I, I want to touch on it because it's such a well-known passage, this idea that Elijah, you know, he goes all the way to Horeb and he crawls into a cave and he's, he's dejected and, and uh, you have the, you know, the, the uh, wind, great wind that passes by and it says there, it tears the rocks. Can you imagine a wind strong enough, that would be a Category 5, that probably I'm thinking none of you have experienced, I haven't, Anybody experienced a Category 5? Doreen? Wind tearing rocks? It's pretty scary, I'm thinking, okay? But God was not in the wind. Then the earthquake. Never experienced one of them either. God was not in the earthquake. Fire. God wasn't in the fire. Still small voice. Okay, God, you got my attention now. He is a living God. Nature can point us to God. Nature, in a sense, can be revelation in the sense that it reveals God's existence. But to know the God of the Bible, we have to understand that he speaks. And he speaks through his prophets. And we have the word of God, and we can hold it in our hands. It's very significant. Now, before we leave uh, that section and uh, get to what we want to talk about today... I want, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm going to try to be good. I'm going to try to behave myself. But, but before we do, I have to tell you, this here account of Elijah being depressed is very, uh, it's, it's well known, and it gets a lot of press. There's, there's a lot said about it. There's much to do, made, uh, this idea that uh, Elijah is, uh, is uh, clinically depressed. Uh, two times in the passage of uh, chapter 19, we have God saying to Elijah, Uh, What are you doing here, Elijah? And commentators have generally assumed that that's a rebuke. That God's rebuking Elijah because he wasn't where he's supposed to be. You should be back there taking on Jezebel, toe to toe, face to face. What kind of a prophet are you anyway? Problem with that is, is that God actually took, one of the problems, God actually took Elijah to Mount Horeb. It's called Uh, the mount of God. God took him there. God directed him there, and God took him there. Um, And there's a lot of echoes here. This is Covenant Mountain, remember. There's a lot of echoes here of Moses on Mount Sinai. You have the 40 days and the 40 nights. You have God passing by the cleft in the rock, and you have the the fireworks and all of that, And, and this is Covenant Mountain. And the people have broken the covenant and Elijah's response to God's question is, is significant. Take a look. Elijah's response to God's question, Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah says, I have been very jealous for, uh, zealous, sorry, zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I'm sure God knew all that, but God did ask, and Elijah told him. Now, some of the words used to describe uh, Elijah's state of mind through this whole episode are, are significant. I, I give you, maybe you're familiar with this, but for those of you who aren't, I can tell you that, that most commentators, a lot of commentators look at Elijah at this point in his life, and, they, and they, there's some, here's some words that get used, okay? These are f- taken from actual commentaries on this passage of Scripture, They say that Elijah cracked up, that he was despondent, self serving, cowardice, self occupied, thinking only of himself, losing sight of the Lord and walking by sight. Some commentators say he he was arrogant. One commentator calls him a wimping defeatist. They accuse him of complaining. They accuse him of having an inflated image of himself. Some commentators call him manic depressive, exhibiting excessive self pity. They call him weak, mistaken, and one commentator said he's in, he was in need of rebuke. Another the word they use is prideful. Here's what one commentator says. When God needed him most, the divinely trained prophet was to prove a notable failure, the very symbol of a wasted life. <laughs> I don't want to know who it is. I don't want to meet him. Man, if he's that hard on Elijah, what would he be on us? And I I, I wish I had the time. To comment on why all of the reasons why it is that we gravitate towards that type of an interpretation and why it is about human nature that we seem to get a little bit of a thrill or a little bit of something out of other people's failures. I don't have time to comment a lot on it, but I will say that I'm pretty sure that it it says more about us than it does about Elijah. Keep in mind that when Josh preached uh, two weeks ago when uh, we first met Elijah, God said to him, you go hide. You, 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 now you've told Ahab, there's not going to rain. Now I want you to go and hide. And Elijah did for almost three years. What was Elijah's state of mind here in this passage that, that in, uh, on Mount Horeb? Was he depressed? I think you could say that. Was he afraid? Yep. Was he discouraged? I think so. was this a pity party? No, I don't think so. What was Elijah? I think the best word is heartbroken. That's what I think. I don't read Hebrew, but one commentator I was reading said that the um, the way the Hebrew is written here uh the emphasis is put on uh, on uh, the pronouns in other words it's like Elijah says this he says if I could paraphrase he says your covenant they have what does he say doesn't say walked away from what's he say broken broken Your altars they have thrown down. Your priest God they have killed with a sword. You see, Elijah had a zeal for God. He had a zeal for God and the purposes of God and the people of God. And I believe he was uh, was suffering from a broken heart. And we want to label him. We want to label him as, as, as somebody who's just uh, lost his perspective and suggest he's, he, he, you know, he's just uh, de- depressed and uh, that he really needs to get his, lift his eyes up and, and get his eyes back on God. But maybe we're the ones that have the wrong perspective. And perhaps we uh, have more zeal for our pop psychology than we have for the Lord. And maybe we need to go to Covenant Mountain and get reminded of what God really wants for this world. Because when you look around you, does what you see break your heart? One of the hardest things I find in my life as I get older, and I'm starting to creep up there. It's happening. They told me it would. I didn't believe them. They were right. And one of the things I find really hard is not to get cynical. Because it's bad. It's hard to distinguish between the natural consequences of people's aberrant behavior and the judgments of God. Cuz it's just bad. I don't know what you see. I know the news reporters and some of the commentators, they can hardly contain their glee. They think we're making wonderful steps. We're so progressive. Here's the word, we're evolving. And I'm watching thinking, man, are you watching the same stuff I'm watching? Are you seeing the same stuff I'm seeing? But they live in la-la land, those people. Because things aren't getting better. Things are getting worse. And you can call me a prophet of doom if you want, but that's what I see but does it break our hearts? I think before we kind of go poo-poo Elijah and tell him to, that he really needs to take a, a, a pill or something and cheer up, I think we need to, to take a moment and, and just help ask the Lord to help us get a perspective on life that Elijah had. It came from his zeal for God and his love for people and what he saw happening around him. As I get ready to move on to the last part here, I just want to say that Elijah, I, I think Elijah was a realist who got hope from God. I'm glad it doesn't end on a, on, on a down note because chapter 19 would be a really hard, hard account if it, if it ended right there. It doesn't end there because God does reply. And By the way, God's reply to Elijah is not a rebuke. God's reply to Elijah confirms Elijah's perspective. And he says to Elijah, I want you to get up because we're in for a regime change. I want you to go to Syria, and I want you to anoint um, Haziel, king over Syria. I want you to anoint uh, Jehu, the son of Nimshi or Nimshi, uh over king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Malolah, Mahola, I guess it is. You shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And he tells them, I still have 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Let's read the uh, text that follows. 1 Kings 19. I'm going to try to move this along here. I appreciate your patience, but. Chapter uh, 19, 1 Kings 19, 19 to 21. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shephat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak, sometimes referred to as a mantle, upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah, and he said, let me kiss my father, my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him, and took the yoke of oxen, and sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yoke of uh, of oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose, and went after Elijah, and assisted him. This is the call, the beginning of the, the call of Elisha, And you see the beginnings of a transition from the the mission and ministry of Elijah to Elisha, his successor. And, uh, you know, as the Bible often does, it's not done talking about Elijah yet. There's still more. You have uh, uh, um, Naboth's Vineyard. I encourage you to read that. It's really, really uh, informative. And then you have the story of of, uh, Micaiah, the prophet, thrown in there at the end. Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, I think it is, I don't like that guy. He says, I hate that guy. He keeps prophesying bad stuff about me. Well, hello. Maybe if you stopped living like a complete total reprobate, maybe people would stop saying bad things about you. He didn't like Micaiah because Micaiah kept calling him out and saying the way it was. He said, you know what, sin is sin. I'm sorry, but it is. And what you did to Naboth is wrong, and God's going to judge you for it. That's not a popular message. It's not a popular message today. So what do we do with it? We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But I encourage you to read carefully. Come into chapter 1 of 2 Kings. Oh, dear. Uh, 2 Kings follows 1 Kings. Did you know that? Come into chapter uh, 1, and uh, that's where the description of Elijah is uh, in there. But uh, 3 <laughs> that's where you have fire coming down from heaven again. This is probably the passage, actually, that the disciples were talking about, not the Mount Carmel passage. I think they were talking about this one. But you can read it because we don't have time. But I, I remind you that you read it carefully. Elijah did not call down fire from heaven. Okay? God sent the fire. Okay, you read it, but that's chapter one. And then in chapter two, Second king chapter two, we have this transition take place in the grand exit. You, 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 you must know this, right? Elijah's grand exit out of the world. How? Okay, I've been doing a lot of talking here. How? No. Whirlwind, thank you. It says he was accompanied by chariots of fire. He actually didn't get in the chariot as near as it reads. It reads whirlwind. I don't know. I didn't know that either. I thought he read heaven in a, in a chariot of fire. But when I read it carefully, it says he was taken by a whirlwind. And Elisha says, Father, look. Did you, the chariots. Did you see the chariots? Did you read this? <laughs> That's, yeah. The chariots of Israel and its horsemen. I thought that was interesting. And Elijah's mantle falls. And Elisha walks over and picks up Elijah's mantle. And he walks back to the Jordan east of Jericho. Significant. They had parted Elijah had parted the waters of uh, the Jordan. And Elisha and him had gone over. And Elisha reaches down. He picks up that mantle. Elijah is gone. The sons of the prophet on the other side later, they want Elijah to send a bunch of people looking for him. He says, he's gone. But if it makes you feel better, go ahead. But he's gone. And he walks over to that water and he takes that cloak. And he strikes the Jordan River with that cloak. And he says... Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And those waters parted. And those sons of the prophets, which would be probably like the schools of the prophets, were on the other side, and they watched him walk across. And they all concluded, you can read it, it's 2 Kings chapter 2, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And then the passage goes on to talk about the miraculous ministry of Elisha. Now, we're not going to get into that in detail today because we don't have time. And you can read it. And I'm sure you will because you'll want to read it because there's an interesting parallel between the ministry and works of Elisha and the ministry of Jesus. In fact, if you're reading carefully and tracking with all this, you should have flags all over the place going here. Where did this last incident happen? Same place where Joshua crossed the Jordan River when God caused the waters to stop. There is a strong parallel between Elijah and Moses. There is a strong parallel between Elijah and John the Baptist. In fact, John the Baptist is called Elijah several times in the New Testament. Not only that, but they had a similar style. John the Baptist was a live-in-the-wilderness-wear-hairy-garments-and-eat-crazy-food kind of guy. Just like Elijah. Very counterculture, cultural very confrontational. The one striking difference is that Herod and his wife Jezebel, otherwise known as Herodias, cut off John's head with the sword. But The parallels are striking. Joshua which is Hebrew for Jesus. Elisha, you can read his miracles. It's a different kind of a ministry than Elijah because we're not all Elijahs and we're not all Elishas. But it's interesting, it's fascinating. If you want to read more about it because we don't have a lot of time, send me an email, I'll send you a link or two that show the correlations between Jesus and Elisha. It's fascinating. The mercy ministries of Elisha. Elisha was very pastoral. He was very, uh, he, uh, some of his miracles that he did, uh, uh, you know, just meeting people's needs, meeting people's needs. Uh, very, very interesting. And uh, I'll say one more thing about Second uh, Kings chapter 2 before I conclude. I really do appreciate you being patient with me because I know that, I know what I can be like Some of you don't realize this, but I do know what I can be like. I go home, and Florence gives me play-by-play. No, that doesn't happen. (laughs) That doesn't really happen. Uh, The bears. Okay? The bears. Chapter 2. If you don't know what I'm talking about you haven't read it, but you'll go home and you'll read it. Elisha did not call on those bears to eat those kids. I'm just saying, it didn't happen. Read it carefully. Just like Elijah never called fire down from heaven. I'm not saying it didn't happen. It definitely happened. But those were covenant bears. And if you know what I mean by that, send me an email. And I'll, but some of you do know what I mean by that. You can talk to me after about that. They were covenant bears. Listen, let me see if I can try to pull some stuff together. It's not even 12 o'clock yet. Let me see if I can just pull a few things together and make some application today. Um, We're not all Elijahs and Elishas. But all Christians have a calling on our lives. And we all have an equipping of the Holy Spirit. To quote one of the Old Testament prophets, I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet but I do follow in the prophetic tradition. What is that prophetic tradition? Well, it's certainly to have a voice. It's to have a voice and to use a voice. A prophet was someone who stands between God and man with the responsibility of faithfully declaring to man what he heard from God. And you can do that. If you have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you can speak on behalf of the Lord. Now, that's an awesome responsibility. But make no mistake about that. We are called to do that. Calling people back. We have to understand the, the, these things within the context of their historical framework. But the framework of his, Elijah's and Elisha's day is not entirely different than the day we live in today. When we look at the world around us, you know what? We need people, men and women, of conviction. We need men and women of conviction who have the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their lives to speak on behalf of the God they know, the living God who speaks. Calling people back to the Lord and His ways. To have a devotion of, to God, a holiness of life, justice and mercy. In the ministry of Elijah, we have a strong emphasis on on the uh, prophetic voice calling sin what it is and talking about the devastating consequences of it in people's lives. Sin destroys people's lives. The, the, The world doesn't like it when the church talks about sin. I get it. I do, and so do you. How do we interact with the culture and society of our time and our space? It's not easy, especially when we're, we tend to get caught up in it. We like to think of culture as something that's out there that, you know, we interact with, but it's so much of what influences our own thinking. And there's a lot to be said about that in the context as well when it comes to the syncretism that Jeroboam and the other kings uh, really influenced in the northern, uh, and it was going on in the south as well. But, you know, Elijah's style, he was, um, he was pretty confrontational to say the least. But the, the prophets deal with uncomfortable uh, un, uh, truths, unsettling words, inconvenient observations. They really bugged Ahab, you know, when he said, to them, man, that Micaiah guy, I hate that guy. He keeps prophesying bad things about me. Well, I can guarantee you this. If you have a conversation with somebody, and you attempt to try to point out things that they are doing that hurt them and their families, you will not get a warm, fuzzy reaction. I'm, you know, you already know that, but it, it, Yeah. Right, Unsettling words, uncomfortable truths, inconvenient observations. You know what, though? Honestly, I think a lot of our contemporary Christianity and a lot of our contemporary contemporary church and the way we do church, sometimes it resembles more Baal worship than it does worship of Yahweh because we are prone to tell people what they want to hear. I know I do. <laughs> I don't want to tell people something they don't want to hear. I want to tell people what they want to hear because I, I don't want them to hate me. It says that Elijah hated Micaiah. I hate that guy. That's what he said. I hate I hate that guy. I'm like, wow. But we have to be really, really careful that we don't give in to, to being... Uh, Comfortable. You know, the, the, the prophets, if any, the prophets do anything, they should pierce our indifference. They should jolt us into reality because that's what needs to happen. And I think what, what's missing so much today in so much of our Christianity is the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. You know, the, the mantle of the prophets falls on us. We are called to stand for God in a day and in a culture that is very much running hard the other way. And it's not about just being different. as you can be different and be just weird. Right? There's no virtue in being different. It matters how you're different. Are you different in your allegiance of your heart to the Lord? Because that's the difference God's looking for. And the ethical differences flow out of that. If we live lives that are different, if we live lives with quality, it's because of our allegiance to the Lord. It's because of His covenant with us, His covenant love, His covenant relationship with us. It's not arbitrary. We're not just called to be contrary or disagreeable. It's not just about standing out. It is about being outstanding. And if you're a parent here today and you haven't heard these words yet, it's coming. You're going to hear them. You're going to hear these words. But everybody else is doing it. Somebody said, any dead fish can float downstream. You know, how, do you, how, how are we to respond to a message like this? I was thinking this week, I was thinking about it, and you know. I was thinking I could send, uh, I could send you all an email and put a link in, and you could just click the link. Because we're used to responding that way, right? How many times a day, I know some of, you, some of you this might not apply to, but most of you, how many times a day do you click a link? And we, you know, we get used to responding that way because it's easy. That was easy. We love easy. We love easy. That was easy. That was easy. Just click the link. But I'll tell you, going against the current of our society That's not easy. Mike, stand up, will you, brother? This is Mike. Mike's standing up. You're all sitting down. Mike's kind of different. He's a stand-up kind of guy, and you're all sitting down. No, don't sit down. Like, stand up, brother. Oh, yeah? I know. He's got a cold. You got a cold? Your throat's just like, pshh. we can feel sorry for you, but we're not going to give you a break, okay? <laughs> I, just to, I just want you to stand I picked you specifically because I know you're a stand-up kind of guy. I picked you specifically because he really is not shy, okay? He's not. I have saw him interact socially many times, and he's not a shy kind of person. But it's not easy to stand up when everybody else is sitting down it really isn't. It's not easy to be different, unless you're just weird. You're not weird, are you? Where's Krista? Now, I want everybody else, if you would, just to stand up with Mike, because he's going to start developing a complex here in a minute. Okay, I get, I get my, the clock, is this clock right? I've been following this clock up here. Is it five after? Okay, yeah, good. It is right. So um, i just give you one, another moment and I want to pray with you. I just want, I just want you to think in light, in light of, you know, what we've looked at today, and I know we haven't, we, we didn't read any of chapter two, second Kings chapter two, but um, I'm concerned that we might take a look at Elijah and elisha and just appreciate their whole their whole the whole reason that God sent them and why they did what they did and what they were all about and what God is all about in his heart for people and his heart for this world and 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 the mantle of the prophets because that mantle falls on you and me, and it ain 't easy. I suck at it just personally, you know saying what I know somebody doesn't want to hear, but but I know they really do need to hear it. I'm not good at that. Some of you are, you're just abrasive. (laughs) You just love it, right? It does something for you. Evelyn's nodding her head there. I think she's talking about Mel, but anyways. (laughs) Most of us find it really, really hard. I think all of us find it hard, and some of us find it harder than others, and I, I think sometimes, you know, people are really shy. Like, how do we how do we have a witness for Christ? How do, we, how do we speak up for the Lord? Well, I'll tell you one way. We go against the current. We don't get caught up in the culture and go along with it. And we, you know what? We need to pray that God will give us a voice, that he will open our mouths. We don't have to be abrasive. And we're not all Elijahs. We're not all Elishas. But the mantle of the prophets falls on you and I. Because if Jesus Christ has called you to follow him, he has called you to represent him and to be a spokesperson for him. And you can't get around that. You cannot get around that. If you think you're following Jesus and he doesn't have your mouth, you're deceiving yourself. And so am I. So let me pray for you this morning. No buttons. But I think about prayer in Elijah's life. And if you read through there and study through that carefully, you have to conclude that that was one of Elijah's biggest secrets was his prayer life. So we can pray and ask God to give us what we need to do what he is calling us to do. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this tremendous group of people here today. And Lord, I love your church. I just love your people. I love how we come from every walk of life and every situation and And here we are, Lord, with all of our weaknesses and failures and our personalities, and it's just a a lot of times we're just kind of a wonderful mess. And the thought that you would use us, Lord, is mind-boggling. But, Lord, we, we know from your word that you not only call us, but you equip us by your spirit, and we can call upon your name and ask you to send what we need to live our lives for you. I pray for each and every one of us here today, Lord, that there would be a real sense of the convicting power of your spirit in our lives so that we would feel compelled to stand in a day that is difficult. I pray right now, Lord, that you be speaking to hearts as only you can by your spirit through your word lord may many people's lives be impacted for their good and for your glory through your people in the days ahead and i commit them to your love and grace all of us in jesus name thank you lord amen